once again, welcome to Wildlife Baptist Church. Uh, my name is John, and it's a joy to be worshiping with you this morning. Um, we're going to begin our time with this vital question, uh, and I want you guys to be able to ask yourself this question throughout this morning as we journey through Galatians 2, 15 through 21. I want you guys to be asking yourself this question. What motivates your actions? What drives you? Maybe you're incentive-driven. That if, if I do A, then B will happen. If I do A, then I will get something. I will attain B. Um, as a parent, one that has parents, uh, I know how well incentives work. Uh, and and uh, if you want this, you got to do this first. It works pretty well. It's, it's a bait and hook kind of approach. Um, but what's interesting is there's a large factor of control for the benefactor, for the sponsor. Whoever's holding the carrot to him has power. So for instance, uh, like with my kids, uh, if you want this dessert, if you want ice cream, you gotta eat your vegetables. This is the incentive motivation. Perhaps you might also be familiar with the guilt motivation or the fear-driven motivation. In this scenario, it's I have to do A because B happened. Or I have to do A or else B will happen. This is a fear of what others would think of you. Um, fear of losing face, fear of losing popularity, losing prestige, fear of losing respect, losing your status or your name. That if you don't act a certain way, then this will result. This is a constant over your uh, eye over your shoulder kind of motivation, a type of fear that oftentimes becomes draining and it's paralyzing. So we have incentive driven, we have fear and guilt driven, but we also have desire driven, um, or what I like to refer to as grace driven. That because A happened, I desire to do B. I can't help but wanting to do B. And this is a motivation based on receiving something incredible, something beyond words. And therefore, your response is gratitude. It's this desire to reciprocate that to other people. And I find that it's really interesting. Um, these three motivations and how we relate to other people, these paradigms, it's interesting that sometimes we relate to God that way. We, we take these motivations and we think this is the way that we relate to the almighty God. In pursuing God, Christians, non-Christians, whether consciously or unconsciously, will act towards God driven by incentives that if I do this, I will get this. Or maybe will act towards God driven by guilt and fear. I have to do this because this will happen. Or else this will happen. Or maybe 
some people will act towards God driven by grace, by desire, that because A happened, I desire to do B. I can't help but do B. These are just three motivations. I'm sure there's a bunch of other different motivations, but these are three motivations that we're gonna see in our text this morning in Galatians 2, 15 through 21. And I do wanna ask you guys this same question for you to ask yourselves. What motivates you? What drives you? Maybe, maybe I want you to think about relationally with other people, but I really want you to think and ponder what motivates my relationship with God? There's a rhythm to that. It's gonna change between all these different things. How do I get to that desire, that grace-driven motivation with God? What are your motivations? If you're new, if you're visiting with us, uh, these past few weeks we've been going through the book of Galatians, the series on Galatians, and uh, just a fresh, really quick recap for those of you guys that weren't here. Um, This is an epistle. Um, It's authored by the Apostle Paul, and though there's debate of exactly which region of Galatia Paul was writing to, we do know some things. Uh, We do know that this church that is being addressed is composed of very, very, very young Christians, Um, and, and they're mainly Gentiles, and they're struggling with this one, possibly more, but this heavy problematic question, are we sure that mere faith in Jesus is enough? As with other epistles in the New Testament, um, we we know that this uh, epistle is a letter. Um, It's instructional and it's informative. Um, And some other interesting facts about Galatians, author and pastor Mark Dever notes that this is possibly one of the earliest written documents of Christianity. Um, Perhaps it is the earliest. And so this gives us a unique picture into these first generation Christians and what they're struggling with. Um, Also, the great reformer Martin Luther wrote that about Galatians, he's like, this is my own letter. And it's not that he wrote it, because we know that Paul wrote it, but why does he say that this is his own letter? It's because this book, Galatians, was foundational for his personal faith and understanding what the true gospel is. It's not about works that make me right with God. He said, it's my own letter. What is the overall message that Paul's communicating to this young church, that it's only through God's grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, that we are declared righteous before God. So we're going to be continuing our series in Galatians 2, 15 through 21 this morning. Um, And what's neat about this section uh, is that it's identified as the heartbeat of the whole book of Galatians. One scholar um, says it's somewhat unique that just in these seven verses alone, Paul communicates some of the most compressed language found anywhere in his epistles. So in these seven verses, Paul will give us the heart of the gospel, and he will be also introducing some of the most important theological paradigms, patterns, motifs that will dominate the rest of his letter. So this morning, uh, uh, the sermon will be called Life from Death, and we're going to be addressing three points of application uh, that will help us better understand what saving faith and a life in Christ 
look like. So please turn with me to Galatians 2. We're going to start in verse 15 through 20. Um, So please follow along with me as I read this passage out loud. It will also be available on the screens behind me. Galatians 2, 15 begins. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So what does saving faith and a life in Christ look like? Point number one, place your faith in Jesus and him alone. Place your faith in Jesus and him alone. I want you guys to look at verses 15 and 16. Paul begins with this pronoun, we. And if you've come to our Wednesday Bible studies, you know, like, I harp on the pronouns. I'm like, we need to know what these pronouns stand for to understand this text. Who is this we referring to? It's possible that It's just Peter and himself that Paul is addressing, but it's also possible that it's much more of a a royal we. He's saying all Jews, me, Paul, you, Peter, and all these Jewish believers, all the Jews, we. In either case, it would seem that there is this tone of irony just with this one word, kind of Paul using cutting sarcasm. This patronizing language in the way he begins 15. Paul is saying, we, you, me, these Jewish teachers, we as Jews have a birth privilege and are not those outsiders, not those Gentiles, not those sinners. So look at how Paul forms this contrast between Jews by birth and Gentile sinners. Just in verse 15 alone, Paul is able to paint this picture of opposition between these two parties, especially how the false teachers had from the men of James that we see in verse 12 against the non-Jews. So it's with this pejorative use of the the term Gentile sinners, Paul is saying, Peter, this, this is the message that you're saying. 
What's interesting is, if there is this irony, this patronizing language from Paul, this would have been difficult for Peter to hear. Why? Because Peter knew that his actions were contrary to the truth of the gospel message. That his actions were going against, they were violating God's revelation that that Peter had from God in Acts chapter 10. In our Friday uh, Bible study, we're, uh, we're joking about uh, in Acts 10, um, when, when Peter re- is revealed that vision, that glorious vision, that beautiful vision from God, um, that, that blanket coming down by the four corners, that there was Portuguese sausage, kalua pig, you know, all this, unclean animals. Um, and, and with this message that Peter got three times, God is trying to tell Peter, and he understood that even salvation is now for the Jews, or is now for the Gentiles. And he was bold in that message until we see later here that his, his actions were violating that vision that he had, violating the message that he proclaimed. Peter knew that he was acting hypocritically to his own teachings. He knew his actions were leading other people away from the truth of the gospel. So what did Peter do wrong? Why is he correcting Peter? When Peter first came to Antioch, he fellowshiped with the Gentile Christians. He knew God's message, that salvation is also available to the Gentiles, and he acted upon this. He welcomed the Gentiles. He received Paul as a brother in Christ to minister to the Gentiles, In verse 4, it tells us that false brothers were secretly brought into the church. They were teaching a false gospel. They were trying to separate the Jewish Christians as some super faith and the Gentile Christians, a sub faith. So in verse 12, this affected Peter out of a motivation of fear. Peter drew back. That's what the text says. Peter drew back from fellowshipping with the Gentiles and separated from them. Ray Ortland um, comments on this passage and saying that Peter, back in the Gospels, when Peter denied the Lord, he was driven by fear for his physical life. But now, here in Antioch, Peter denies the Lord, driven by fear for his ecclesiastical survival, his role in the church, his prominence in the church. He didn't want to lose that, so he denies the Lord. Peter compromised the truth of the gospel in order to save face. He wanted to save his leadership within the church in order to win the approval of others, in order to put control and comfort back in his court. Peter's actions seem to suggest that non-Jewish people could not fully be accepted by God, not fully God's people. And verse 14 is also revealing, not only did Peter personally compromise the false gospel, there's this word in verse 14 that Peter forced others into this false gospel with his passive actions. In fact, Ephesians 2.12 gives us a glimpse of this Jewish perspective of those Gentiles, of those Gentile sinners. Ephesians 2.12 says that Jews believed that the Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, 
having no hope and without God in the world. So another scholar comments and says that these Jews believed that they had a privileged salvation in that they had received the law of God, the Old Testament scriptures, as well as circumcision and the sign of the covenant, and they were better than all the non-Jews. A Greek scholar comments on the language that Paul is using here, and it would seem that in verse 15, Paul sets this trap. And it's going to be sprung in verse 16. So again, what is, what is Paul saying to Peter? He's saying, we, you, me, these Jewish teachers, we have a birth privilege and are not those outsiders, not those Gentiles, those sinners. Then he moves to verse 16. And the we changes. It becomes all believers. How does this change it? He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by what? By faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Do you see how this goes back to last week's point? The true gospel unites true believers, but the false gospel divides. In these verses, verses 15 and 16, Paul is not arguing that these Jewish Christians had to play nice and let the the Gentiles be included. Paul is arguing that these Jews need to be included with the Gentiles. That they too must be identified as sinners, transgressors of the law, enemies of God. Paul was in a sense leveling the field by pulling the Jews down and saying, no, you're, you're here with all of humanity, all sinners. All of you, all of us need to rely on our faith, full reliance in Christ and a faith that he will save them. And he drives this point home by referencing uh, Psalm 143.2, which he's also going to reference in Romans 3.20. And what is he doing by referencing this psalm? He's saying and explaining that no individual can be justified through the observance of law because no one could ever keep the law. So in order to explain how God transforms death into life, he uses a lot of heavy terms. He uses this term, justified, and this phrase, works of the law. What does this term justified mean? What does justification mean? It has two dimensions. Justification is both forensic and eschatological. Big words, big words. Forensic in the sense of, in the court language, that there's a ruling from a judge that declares, you are not guilty, you are In Christian terms, you are right before God. It's a declaration of righteousness. But it's also eschatological in the sense of this phrase, already but not yet. In the sense that, yes, we are declared righteous already, but there's this process, this lifelong process where you grow into what that righteousness looks like. So he uses the term justification. 
Martin Luther explains it with this term alien righteousness, that this righteousness that was foreign, that was alien to your being, is being imputed, is being credited to your name, even though it's not a part of you whatsoever, you receive Christ's righteousness and you receive Christ himself to grow into his image. But it only happens through faith. What does this construct, works of the law, compared to this phrase justified by faith in Jesus Christ mean? Works of the law are referring to human merit, my works, what I can attain based on my allegiance to law. Not just referring to the Ten Commandments, it's really important that we understand uh, that this is a whole system of beliefs when Paul uses law. This is a way of life. It was supposed to reveal The law was supposed to reveal their dire need for God's mercy. It was supposed to show them their sin, their need for God. But the irony was that they didn't understand that Jesus fulfilled the law, that Jesus was actually the telos. He was the end of the law and that he was the goal of the law. So they run back to what's comfortable, what's in their control. What gives them a measure of, I'm better than you, but we're brothers and sisters. This is why that phrase, justified by faith in Jesus Christ, is so crucial. It communicates how our union with Christ, our confession of being in Christ, justifies us. As an example, uh, Vodi Bauckham, uh, this preacher, says this in one of his sermons. He says, hell will be filled with people who didn't drink, didn't cuss, and may have been baptized. Why? Because not one of those things makes someone a Christian. His point is, it's not our works, it's not our own merit, it's not our morality, it's not our ethics, it's not our political allegiances, it's not our fine-tuned humanitarian efforts and aid. It is only Christ and Christ alone that transforms the dead into eternal life with him. In Romans 6, 3 through 10, um, I had the privilege of being able to study this and talk with you guys about it last time. But Paul uses this this imagery of believer's baptism and it communicates this beautiful reality that believers in Christ have. That when a sinner places their faith in Jesus, what was it? It's Christ's death to sin is our death to sin. Christ's burial is our burial. Christ's resurrection is our resurrection and Christ's new life is our life. The life we live and participate in now in faith. Speaking of justification, Spurgeon uh, once eloquently wrote, you stand before God as if you were Christ. Because Christ stood before God as if he were you. This is justification. This is the grace of God. And this is the true gospel that we need to place our faith in. Number two. Confess and believe. 
that Jesus is the only gospel. Look with me at verse 17. Upon first pass, it's fairly difficult to understand what this conditional question is asking. It's pretty clear that Paul disagrees with this conditional statement, but what is Paul communicating here in verse 17? Paul is asking if justification in Christ means that Jewish Christians need to abandon their commitment to Torah, to law, is Christ then serving sin? Is he enabling people to sin? Paul answers with one of the strongest negations in his vocabulary. He says, God forbid. Another rendering, never, never may it be. In verse 18, Paul continues this argument with this contrast between rebuilding and tearing down. J. Martin comments and says, Paul is saying, for whoever rebuilds the laws, distinctions between Jew and Gentile, as though God were making things right through the observance of the law rather than in Christ, has thereby shown himself to be a sinner, a transgressor. What irony! These men from James are attempting to rebuild the structures that Christ, in his death, came to tear down. Jesus died to deliver them from this, and yet they return back to it. Why? It comes back to control. It comes back to comfort. In fact, Matt's introduction point uh, last week was the desire for control of our lives always leads to control, the need to control others. These men from James, these false teachers, they didn't want to entirely place their faith in Jesus, not in his finished work on the cross. Only some of it. I was talking with some friends last night. It would almost be like a church that has listed on their website that they believe in the all-sufficiency and infallible word of God. And yet, in practice, they only teach pithy cliches, using motivational stories and attempting to inspire others to be a better you without a single reading from the Bible. This is what it looks like to confess that Jesus is the only gospel and to not actually believe it. This is what Peter was doing when he cowardly retreated from fellowship with Gentile believers. This is why we must confess and believe that Jesus is the only gospel. This leads us to our final point this morning. After we've placed our faith in Jesus and him alone, after we've confessed and believed that Jesus is the only gospel, we need to renounce other gospels. And embrace Christ. Look at verse 19. It is foundational that we understand that death to the law is not the end of the story. For believers, eternal life comes after death. And Paul shifts from this we language to I language in verse 18 through 21. This shift in pronouns is very interesting. 
In verse 19, uh, in fact, he uses this emphatic pronoun, ego. Um, He's saying that for I, through the law, died so that I may live to God. This emphatic I, it does two things. By saying I this way, Paul is referring back to his conversion story and his calling back in in chapter 1. But secondly, what is Paul doing when he's using this emphatic I? T. George in the New American Commentary explains it very well. He says this, speaking of Paul's experience, in his experience, in a paradigmatic way, this exemplifying way, he's describing what might be called normal for the Christian life. Just as Paul had to die to the law, he is saying that we must die to the law. Just as Paul had to renounce his former lifestyles, his desires, his achievements, his accolades, his way of earning a righteousness before God, he's saying we too need to die to the law, die to our former way of life, our desires, our self, our merits, our accolades, our meanings of earning a right stand before God. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 3, 4. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Listen to this. Paul writes, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he just continues to go on, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying, Jesus died to the law so that you and I can die to the law. Jesus lived to God so that you and I can live to God. Church, surrender control to Jesus. Take comfort in him. Confess him. Believe him. Jesus is the gospel. It's not Jesus plus this. It's not Jesus plus the law. It's not Jesus plus human merit. It's not Jesus plus my best intentions and my best efforts. Jesus is the only gospel. We need to renounce these other gospels and embrace Christ. Verse 20 forms this parallelism with verse 19. And it explains what this transformation from death to life looks like. Paul writes, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I was talking with Paul about this earlier. Um, This word crucified, verse 20, um, Paul uses, in his language, he uses this form, this perfect form uh, of the word crucify. Why does he do this? What does it tell us? 
If we look at this perfect form of the word crucified, it paints this powerful picture of the reality that believers have in Christ relating to Jesus' crucifixion. This perfect form, like all perfect forms, it speaks of a past action that has been completed, but it has ongoing effects, ongoing results. In other words, Christ's one-time crucifixion his completed work on the cross, his payment for humanity's sin was on the cross. It was completed, but it has ongoing results. So what does Paul mean when he says, I've been crucified with Christ? In answering this question, Origen asks this really interesting question uh, to kind of counteract it. He's like, is Paul unique? When he says, I have been crucified with Christ, did he experience a crucifixion with Christ that is unique? No. This is where Paul uses that paradigmatic language again. He is saying that just as Christ, or just as he is credited Christ's righteousness, so we too, in faith, are credited Christ's righteousness. He is saying that Christ's death to sin was vicariously our death, it was in our place. When believers are before the judgment seat, they will not be weighed by their deeds, their own merit. They will be judged by Christ's. Yet this is one of the most quoted passages in Galatians, and oftentimes it's misunderstood. It's not referring to suffering that a believer may experience in their decision to follow Christ. It's not referring to endurance That through Christ's strength, we can endure trials and suffering. It's not teaching Christian perfectionism as if one's personality gets zapped out of existence and instantly somehow is replaced mechanically by perfect morals. And no, this text doesn't mean that believers are snatched away and delivered from the arena of sin, the arena of suffering, or that they won't ever experience physical death. What is Paul teaching here? Look at what Paul says in the latter part of verse 20. It will help us understand what it means to be crucified in Christ. He says, I've been crucified in Christ, but the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. While we live in the flesh, we'll be experiencing suffering. We will struggle with sin, but we live by faith in the Son of God. These false brothers They were not satisfied with the gospel. They were not satisfied with Christ alone. They wanted other aids to secure their salvation. They wanted differentiation within believers, a metric to say, I'm better than them for their personal glory. Verse 21, these men from James, what are they doing? Essentially, they're nullifying. They're setting aside, they're rejecting God's grace. Their actions are saying Christ's death was purposeless. Calvin once commented, he said, for if we do not renounce all other hopes and embrace Christ alone, we reject the grace of God. Luther even comments and echoes this, and he says, nevertheless, the sin is common. Paul Washer, uh, another preacher, uh, he once asked his congregation, asking about motivations, he says, 
are you doing it for God? Or are you doing it for you in God's name? We all, me, you, we all become tempted to find security in and find comfort in other gospels. Therefore, we need to constantly place our faith in Jesus and him alone. We need to constantly confess and believe that Jesus is the only gospel. We need to constantly renounce other gospels and embrace Christ. Church, we need to, or we nullify the grace of God with anything that appeals to our pride, anything that gives us security outside of Christ's. Galatians 5.1, I studied in a few weeks, it says this, it says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Ortland, in his sermon, explains this so eloquently. This is what he says on verse 21. If you would think about Christ's atonement on the cross properly, you would throw everything else down to hell. Christ is nothing but joy and sweetness to a trembling and broken heart. As Paul shows here when he describes it so sweetly and says, he loved me and gave himself for me. The law did not love us and it did not give itself for us. The circumcision party didn't, not even Barnabas, but Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us to make us clean forever before the all-holy God. Whatever our background, whatever our culture, giving us each a place at his banquet table forever, Jesus will not draw back and separate himself from us because he fears no one. There is not an ounce of hypocrisy in him. He made full satisfaction for us in his perfect life and in his atoning death because he loved us, each of us personally. And when our hearts dwell on his dying love for us as a personal remedy for our deepest fears that we don't belong, fear that we'll forever be exiles and refugees and outsiders in the church, but when his love moves us, there will be room in our hearts for other sinners. He continues and says this, and all the naysayers, all the critics and all the unsatisfiable fault finders and the devil himself will have to find a way to cope with the joy we share together in the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Guests, online community, church family, what motivates your actions? What drives you? I would like to conclude our time for a chance for each of you to respond. For those of you guys who are in Christ, that are Christians, that are faithfully resting in Christ's finished work, who've already placed your faith in Christ, confessed and believed in him and embraced him, I want you guys to be encouraged that in Christ you can continue to rest in the assurance of your faith in Jesus 
the true gospel is enough. Justification in Christ is enough. Jesus is enough. Continue to place your faith in Jesus. We never grow out of the gospel message. It continues to give us life. Continue to place your faith in Jesus. Continue to confess and believe in him. Continue to renounce other gospels. False gospels that promote division within the church. Promote a hierarchy of holiness. Promote partiality. A false gospel that nullifies the grace of God. Let's be a people that stand firm on the truth of the gospel and are bold enough to call to lovingly call faulting brothers and sisters out of their sin and bring them back to the truth, the never-ending fount, Christ himself and the true gospel message. For those of you who are in Christ, but maybe you've fallen away from the community, maybe you've fallen back into sinful habits Maybe you've fallen back into the trappings of sin and you're placing your identity in your motivations in things like, things that appeal to your pride. Maybe you identify that you're being motivated by security in things outside of Christ. I want to remind you this morning that if you really do have a saving faith in Christ, you've already been justified. You have Christ's righteousness. You have Christ's. I urge you to come back to the only true gospel that saves. You ask, how do you do that? Place your faith in Jesus and him alone. We do it again. Over and over again, constantly, that we confess and we believe that Jesus is the only gospel. And then we renounce other gospels. We do this over and over and over This is our sanctification. I want to encourage you that Jesus is enough. Also, I want to lastly address those who personally just do not know Christ. For those that have not realized yet that you have a need for Christ, you have not placed your faith in Christ, I want to communicate to you guys. He will have you. Christ will have you. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Receive Christ. He will have you. Just as I said last time, you think you're a mess? He will have you. If you feel that you don't deserve forgiveness because of your sins, he will have you. If you've been trying to win the approval of God by your own merit, striving and toiling to clean yourself up before him, I have good news for you this morning. You can stop striving to be good enough. You can stop wearing guilt and fear and incentive for what others think of you and what you can achieve on your own because salvation before God comes through the free gift of grace. You will find rest in Christ. He will have you.
you wish to know more about Christ, what it means to place your faith in Christ, and if you simply want to just know more about our church, uh, we, we would love to hear from you. Please find me, uh, Matt, any of our members. We would love to talk with you more about what it means to have faith in Christ, what it means to live in Christ.